Hi, ParCast listeners. I'm Carter. And I'm Molly. In honor of Earth Day, all of ParCast is bringing you a special event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, we're investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet. And telling those stories. Because climate change isn't just about science and the weather. It shows up in all parts of society and culture, even crime. Did you know, for example, about the strange circumstances surrounding the 1974 death of a chemical technician? Or that in the early 2000s, there was a serial killer with a very specific target, hikers in national forests. Or did you know about the many environmental activists who go missing or end up dead? To hear these stories and more, come along with us for a different kind of Earth Day celebration. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of nuclear contamination, drug and alcohol abuse, murder, and car crashes. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and drug and alcohol abuse, visit spotify.com resources. Let us paint a picture for you. The American West. Oklahoma, to be precise, the wind howling across the plains. A hero rolls into town with a mysterious past, trying to start over, away from the drama of Texas. They get a job at the local factory because it pays well. They want to keep their head down, maybe send a few dollars to their family back home. But before long, the townsfolk realize this newcomer is special their savior, their pale rider. They complain to our hero about the dangers at this factory, how local workers are being poisoned, many of whom are just kids. At first, our protagonist shies away. It isn't their fight. Their heroic days are over. They came here to get away from the drama. That is, until they notice something is off. It appears that the factory might be inadvertently poisoning the townsfolk, poisoning our hero, too. That is when they decide to change their plans, to fight the factory, to unite the people, to embrace the Pale Rider within them, even if it kills them. But our hero isn't Wyatt Earp. Buffalo Bill or some other famous cowboy. Her name is Karen Silkwood, a slight woman, barely 100 pounds, with a 70s mod haircut. And like many heroes, it was her destiny to help people. But could it have led to her death? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. 
I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Karen Silkwood, a nuclear lab technician who was exposed to plutonium radiation at her workplace in Oklahoma. At first, Karen tried to improve workplace conditions through her union, and from there, things escalated quickly. She gathered information about the lab's safety issues and planned to expose them to the New York Times. But on her way to meet the reporter, Karen died in a car crash that seemed suspicious to some. Her documents were never recovered. Today, we'll dig into Karen's life and her complicated backstory that many enemies used against her. But in our eyes, it only made her a more captivating hero. Next time, we'll turn our Geiger counters on three conspiracy theories surrounding Karen's death and see if any are radioactive. From the idea that Karen's car was run off the road to the possibility Karen uncovered a plutonium smuggling ring and was killed to cover it up. Along the way, we'll explore Karen's legacy, which even 50 years later is an inspiration to labor and environmental activists around the world. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests... Don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Karen Silkwood rode into Crescent, Oklahoma in August 1972. She was just 26 years old. With piercing eyes and dark shoulder-length hair cut in a 70s shag, she looked more like the lead singer of a punk band than a cowboy, but she didn't care. When Karen arrived in Crescent, she was starting over, a drifter with no job. Like most heroes, 
She had a complicated past, as most heroes do. To get a glimpse into Karen's backstory here, and throughout our script, we're going to rely on one of the definitive books about her life, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, the story behind the Kerr-McGee plutonium case by Richard Rashke. Rashke, a veteran journalist and author, interviewed numerous people from Karen's past and filtered through thousands of pages of court transcripts and FBI files. But before we get to that, let's go back to her time in Texas. Karen and her husband, Bill, had three kids, but the two suffered from chronic marital problems. Eventually, Karen had enough and left. Later in life, Karen's enemies used that against her. They portrayed her as selfish and heartless for leaving her kids. According to Rashke's book, nothing could be further from the truth. Karen continued to see her children every few months. She was a loving mom, and it killed her to move away. And what was she supposed to do? She couldn't take Bill's behavior anymore. So that's what spurred Karen to hit the road. That's what brought her to Crescent, Oklahoma, and to her destiny. For decades, Crescent was a farming town with a population of about 1,500. In the 1920s, oil was discovered nearby. Then, in the 1960s, a new employer came to town, went by the name of Kerr-McGee, one of the biggest energy conglomerates in the country. It had started out in oil, but was branching out into something new, nuclear power. It was the heyday of the nuclear age. After World War II, nuclear technology shifted from building weapons to generating electricity, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Countries like Japan, France, and the Soviet Union were all pursuing this new, supposedly clean energy. And Kerr-McGee was on the cutting edge. Not far from Crescent, on the banks of the Cimarron River, Kerr-McGee built a facility to refine radioactive fuel for nuclear reactors. Situated on nearly a thousand acres of scrub brush and wetlands, the site had two main buildings, a few storage areas, and waste dumps. Kermagee hired local farm boys to pack uranium and plutonium into tiny pellets and seal them in metal tubes. The tubes were then shipped across the country for use in experimental nuclear reactors. But before we get much further, let's make a quick detour to talk about plutonium and other radioactive elements. For starters, plutonium has the potential to be quite dangerous when it's handled incorrectly. It's so unstable that it's constantly breaking down. And in the process, it emits energy in the form of radiation. Right, to be clear, it's not that nuclear energy itself is inherently bad or dangerous. It's the radiation it emits when proper safety measures aren't taken. Think of it like a sunburn for your whole body, inside and out. Radiation breaks down our cells, triggers mutations in our DNA, and causes cancer. So how much plutonium does it take to make you sick or kill you? Plutonium is most dangerous when inhaled. A tiny particle the size of a grain of pollen could be deadly if it lodged in your lungs, where it could spread to other organs via the blood and increase your risk for cancer and other diseases. More than half a gram 
could be a threatening dose to nearly a million people. One way experts measure doses, lethal or not, is by disintegrations per minute, or DPM. In the 1970s, the Atomic Energy Commission established a safe daily limit of 500 DPM for workers in the nuclear industry. Some physicists argued that 500 was too high, but it was at least a starting point. Either way, the higher the number of disintegrations, the more dangerous it was. Which was exactly what Karen and the workers at Kermagee's Cimarron plant handled every day in unsafe conditions. At least, according to complaints from the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or OCAW. But Kerr-McGee disputed those claims, saying they abided by state and federal laws. That being said, in the beginning, it probably seemed like a dream job to Karen, mainly because she loved science. Back in high school, she was the only girl in chemistry class. It's never easy to stand out in high school, but Karen was tough and smart, a rogue with her own ideas. Now, at Kerr-McGee, Karen had an important position, not one of the grunt workers packing plutonium. She was doing quality control, inspecting and x-raying fuel rods to make sure there weren't any flaws. It didn't hurt that she worked across the hall from a handsome man named Drew Stevens, and eventually they started dating. Drew was likely attracted to Karen's outlaw nature. He even helped her buy a new horse, a trusty white Honda Civic, a working cowboy steed, but it still had a little get up in it. Not long after, they moved in together. But it wasn't all honeymoon in Crescent. Only three months after starting her job, Karen joined a union strike against Kerr-McGee. At the time, she didn't care much about the union, but she felt it was her duty to show solidarity for workers' safety. In the meantime, Karen's relationship with Drew turned rocky. According to Rashke's interview with Drew, he felt stifled and didn't want to get married. But Karen's relationship problems were soon dwarfed by the drama at work. Even though the union strike ended, conditions at the facility seemed to get worse. In the spring of 1974, Kerr-McGee increased production, forcing Karen and other workers to pull 12-hour shifts. Although we should state that Kerr-McGee claimed this only happened in rare instances when they were short-staffed. According to Karen and her colleagues, corners were being cut. Equipment didn't work well. It seemed like only a matter of time before there was a deadly accident. Complaints alleging dangerous incidents were already common at the plant, including one major one from April 1972, just months before Karen started. As reported at the time, three workers were found to be contaminated with plutonium, though it's not clear how. At lunch, they went to a local restaurant and even contaminated the premises. The men were decontaminated when they returned to work, but according to legal filings, the restaurant was never informed. These events probably spooked Karen. Imagine being in her shoes. You have a decent job that pays more than anywhere else around. You're taking all the right precautions, trying to stay safe. 
But can you ever really know for sure? Well, Karen was about to find out. On July 31st, 1974, she worked the 4 p.m. shift. Like most days, she inspected plutonium pellets inside a glove box, a giant glass case with two holes, and heavy sealed gloves to handle the dangerous plutonium. When her day was over, she went home and fell asleep. But sometime the next day, she got alarming news. Kermagee's health department informed Karen that during her shift, the air in the lab was contaminated with plutonium, meaning she was likely contaminated with plutonium, and it could cost her her life. Coming up, Karen goes undercover to get dirt on Kermagee. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying our Earth Day special. Here's a reminder that you can find more of Dark Green, Earth Crimes, and Conspiracies on other podcast series all month long. So far, a standout for me has been the episodes from Serial Killers on the Unicorn Killer, Ira Einhorn. So fascinating to follow his evolution from Earth Day advocate to convicted murderer. Check out these episodes and more across all of ParCast all month long. And if you'd like to take action on the climate or learn more about the topics covered in Dark Green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, visit Spotify.com slash Dark Green Resources. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. It was August 1st, 1974. Less than 24 hours before, Karen Silkwood had been exposed to plutonium. After her shift, health and safety workers checked the air monitors in her lab. Karen knew it was bad, but she didn't know how bad. And we don't know the exact levels of her contamination. It was apparently under the Atomic Energy Commission-approved limit of 500 dpm, but Kermagee still required her to submit weekly urine and fecal samples, standard practice after an exposure. The event came at a pivotal time for the workers of Kermagee. The local union's contract was set to expire in about four months. That meant the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union was preparing to renegotiate its contract with a nuclear plant. And to do that, the union needed members to represent them at the table, a bargaining committee. A union wants its most persuasive people on the committee so they can get the best contract for the group. And to fill those slots, the union usually holds an election. 
Karen didn't campaign, but she made it known she wouldn't turn down a spot at the table. Even without politicking, and became the first female member of the bargaining committee. Karen didn't have much time to celebrate. After the election, the OCAW's national leadership requested Karen and the two other representatives fly to Washington, D.C. to prepare for upcoming negotiations. They also had to meet with the Atomic Energy Commission, the powerful regulatory institution Congress created to oversee the nuclear industry, including Kerr-McGee. This was the first time Karen had ever visited the nation's capital, but it was also the first time she learned about the deadly effects of plutonium. Even though she was exposed just two months earlier, Karen claimed she was unaware it could cause cancer. When Karen heard that, she went nuclear herself. Of course, she knew plutonium was dangerous. There was a reason she handled it in a sealed box with heavy gloves but she didn't think a tiny exposure could be lethal. Imagine being a newly minted union leader who learned she and her coworkers were routinely exposed to carcinogens. What would you do? Well, well, you know what Karen did. She raised hell. In that meeting, she told the union leaders, Tony Matsoki and Steve Wadka, that she had damaging information about Kerr-McGee. And it wasn't just that they were keeping the dangers of plutonium a secret from employees. According to her, they were also tampering with quality control reports. Karen contended that Kerr-McGee managers doctored photographic negatives of the fuel rods to slip them by their customer. Basically the 1970s version of photoshopping out the errors, except if they covered up these blemishes, it was potentially dangerous. We should note that in 1974, Kerr-McGee officials strongly denied these allegations, saying, quote, we know of no irregularities in quality control at our Cimarron facility. Nuclear scientists disagreed on what would happen if defective rods made it into a reactor. Some shrugged it off, claiming, at worst, it could cause a plant to shut down temporarily. But others warned it could cause a meltdown or explosion. Hearing all this, Matsoki and Wadka were likely shocked, but also hesitant to tell the Atomic Energy Commission without hard evidence. So they told Karen to keep it in her back pocket for now. The next day, Karen and the union delegates met with the AEC. They presented a list of grievances against Kerr-McGee. The AEC could do real damage to the company. They could issue fines, revoke their license, even shut them down. And yet, critics of the AEC felt there was an inherent conflict of interest. As they saw it, it behooved the AEC to keep problems quiet. They were promoting nuclear power as a safe alternative to fossil fuels. Besides, without nuclear power, there was no need for the AEC. So, when Karen and the union outlined their concerns, they likely didn't have a lot of hope that change would occur. But the AEC agreed to look into the issues anyway. Before Karen left DC, Matsoki pulled her aside, away from her committee colleagues. He told her he was interested in her allegations about fuel rod tampering, and he wanted to bring the information to the New York Times. But that would require proof, reports, 
as much information as possible about those doctored negatives. And he wanted her to go undercover to get the info. Karen likely knew the stakes. Kerr McGee had more than a billion dollars in assets. Who knew what sort of resources they had at their disposal? If they found out, they might fire her on the spot, or she might potentially face legal repercussions. But Karen wasn't scared. She could handle herself. Plus, this might be the only way to protect her co-workers, to enact real change at the plant. She was in. Upon returning to work, she collected evidence in a spiral notebook. It was around this time, Karen started to feel like she was becoming a target. Kerr McGee likely saw her as a labor agitator. Non-union workers at the factory disliked her because they thought she was trying to shut down the plant, their source of income. Even her fellow union comrades probably wondered if she was bringing too much heat on them not acting in their best interest. Sure, they wanted safety, but they needed their jobs. They couldn't brave another strike, or worse, a plant shutdown. So Karen had become persona non grata almost everywhere. It weighed on Karen, but she knew she was doing the right thing. So she pressed on with her mission, poking into dark corners at Kerr McGee, It was around then that she stumbled onto an even bigger issue, missing plutonium. Somehow, Karen claims she'd discovered almost 40 pounds of the radioactive material had gone missing from the plant, enough to build three atomic bombs. According to the Washington Post and later court testimony, Kerr McGee acknowledged plutonium was missing but they claimed the amount was very small. The AEC refused to release details about the amount, stating it was classified. The pressure seemed to be taking a toll on Karen. Towards the end of 1974, friends and coworkers noticed she was not herself. She wasn't sleeping well. But it wasn't just sleep issues. Karen was losing weight. According to Rashke, she dropped from 115 pounds to 94. Was it radiation poisoning or something else? In late October, she called her sister in Texas, crying. Karen said people were trying to do things to her. She claimed she was quitting as soon as she helped the union secure a new contract. Thankfully, bargaining was only a week away. Was she being paranoid? There was no way to tell. But then things got infinitely worse. On November 5th, 1974, the day before contract negotiations were set to begin, Karen was exposed to plutonium for the second time, and it was even worse than before. Before coming and going from the facility, Karen and other employees had to do routine scans to measure for exposure. And this time, her clothes showed 20,000 DPM. That's 40 times the AEC's safe level. She could have been exposed through a pinprick in her glove or even a leak somewhere in the factory, but the source was unclear. So Kermagee's health and safety team raced to figure it out. After decontamination, Karen finished her shift through 1 a.m., then went home, 
where she likely tried to get as much rest as possible. Contract negotiations were slated to start in the morning. But when she returned to work the next day, she was exposed again, this time while doing paperwork. Like before, nobody could determine how. They checked her office, her locker, and her car, but they couldn't pinpoint the source of the leak. It was starting to look like someone was trying to stop her from attending the bargaining sessions. Miraculously, Karen didn't let it stop her. She still attended the meeting. But the next day, things escalated beyond her control. On the morning of November 7th, Karen reported directly to Health and Safety. This time, she was even more contaminated, around 40,000 DPM, almost 100 times the safe level. What was even more perplexing, she'd been contaminated before arriving at work. Meaning she was exposed at home. Within hours, hazmat-suited workers swarmed Karen's apartment with alpha radiation detectors. Sure enough, it was a hot zone. The bathroom floor mat showed 40,000 DPM. The toilet seat cover read 100,000, all of which paled in comparison to the refrigerator. When one of the workers opened it, the meters skyrocketed. The package of bologna and cheese read 400,000. Almost everything in Karen's home was bagged and treated like radioactive waste. At the AEC's insistence, Karen was taken to the Los Alamos National Laboratory, America's premier nuclear research facility, for testing. There, a full-body scan revealed Karen had plutonium in her lungs, one of the most dangerous places to be exposed. But specialists assured her it wasn't a serious dose, at least as far as they knew. In between testing, Karen connected with Steve Wadka at the OCAW. He wanted to know where they stood on her covert mission. Did she have any files to show the New York Times? A reporter, David Burnham, was standing by to meet with her. Wodka told Karen it was all right if she didn't have the info or if she wanted to back out. Nobody would think any less of her, especially with all the scrutiny on her and her contamination. According to Rashke's interview with Wodka, Karen's response was simple. Let's do it. After everything she'd been through, she wasn't backing down now. The next day, November 13th, Karen was back in Oklahoma, attending union negotiations at Kerr-McGee. Then, around 5.30 p.m., she met a delegation of union members at a diner in Crescent to discuss strategy. According to Rashke's book, Karen's colleagues remembered her being quiet and serious during that meeting. They recalled her drinking iced tea and thumbing through her cherished spiral notebook as well as a brown legal folder that was full of photos or maybe x-rays. After the meeting, Karen jumped into her trusty Honda Civic and galloped south on Highway 74. She was headed to Oklahoma City to meet with her posse, Drew Stevens, Steve Wodka, and the Times reporter, David Burnham. And yet, about seven miles from the diner, Karen's car suddenly veered across the road. 
She crossed the opposite lane onto the grassy shoulder and smashed head-on into a concrete culvert. In an instant, Karen Silkwood was dead. Coming up, investigations into Karen's death lead to dark places. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the night of November 13th, 1974, Karen Silkwood's Honda Civic lay crumpled in a ditch along Highway 74, just outside Crescent, Oklahoma. In the darkness, steam hissed from the cracked radiator, oil dripped from the engine to the ground. Around 7.30 p.m., the headlights of a truck illuminated the crushed vehicle. A truck driver on his way north noticed the scene and pulled over. As he approached the car, he likely knew Karen was already dead. Her limp arm hung out the window. The steering wheel had nearly pinned her to the roof of the car. He noticed Karen's purse had ended up outside the vehicle, resting against a retaining wall. And there were some loose papers on the ground. Were they her files? Her spiral notebook? Perhaps ejected from the car during the accident? Or... Had someone removed them after the accident? At this point, there's no way to know for sure, but there was something else strange about the crash. Not long after the welder found Karen, two other people arrived at the scene by what they said was pure chance. Employees from Kerr-McGee. According to Richard Rashke's book, one was a quality control supervisor, the other a document control manager. Two people who could have been implicated in Karen's files. It's possible this was just a coincidence. The Kerr-McGee building was nearby. Highway 74 was one of the only main roads around. And later, those two employees were questioned by the FBI and cleared. Yeah, but their reason for finding the crash is fishy. One of them claimed their wife had a flat tire and they went together to go fix it. Allegedly, that's when they stumbled on the scene of Karen's accident. The truck driver and the Kerr-McGee employees waited together for the Oklahoma Highway Patrol to arrive. The officer was a 24-year-old named Rick Fagan. He was fresh out of the academy, barely on the job for five months. While Karen's body was ushered away in an ambulance, Fagan surveyed the crash scene. He looked for skid marks and angles of trajectory, but in the dark, he couldn't see much. He'd have to come back tomorrow. All he knew for sure was, somehow Karen's car crossed over the other lane onto the grassy shoulder. Instead of naturally drifting into the adjacent field, the car drove parallel to the highway and crashed into the concrete culvert, head on. It appeared that either Karen didn't see the culverts and didn't hit the brakes, Or perhaps the brake lines had been cut. Or, according to Officer Fagan, she might have been asleep. 
Either way, she hit the concrete wall at about 45 miles per hour. After checking out the scene, Fagan gathered the loose papers and placed them back in the car. Then he inventoried the contents of Karen's purse and vehicle. Besides the usual items, there were union bargaining papers, two cigarettes that looked like cannabis, a loose pill, and a plastic flask containing an unidentified liquid, but no notebook or files. Over in Oklahoma City, Drew Stevens, Steve Wodka, and David Burnham from the New York Times waited for Karen. Before long, they heard about her accident and rushed to the scene. When they got there, her car had just been towed, but just as Fagan pointed out, they realized her files and notebook were gone. According to Rashke's book, Drew's first reaction was clear. This was no accident. And perhaps Karen fellow union members agreed. Because not long after, the union hired its own private investigator and crash expert. And it wouldn't be the last. Karen's death triggered at least six other probes, ranging from the FBI to Congress. The union's expert was a man named A.O. Pipkin, Jr., who had investigated over 2,000 wrecks and testified in 300 court cases by the time he took on Karen's case. On November 16th, three days after Karen's death, Pipkin examined the crash site and her Honda. According to him, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol report missed some crucial details. During the crash, Karen's steering wheel had collapsed at about the three o'clock and nine o'clock positions, exactly where someone would grip it if they were conscious. In Pipkin's experience, people who fell asleep at the wheel crumpled it at the top and bottom, the 12 o'clock and six o'clock positions, usually because their bodies folded around the wheel. Instead, the evidence seemed to show that Karen was awake, gripping the wheel with all of her might, perhaps trying to steer herself out of danger. He also noticed there was a dent on the back bumper and left rear side of the car. Other witnesses claimed it hadn't been there before the crash. The police disputed the dents, but Pipkin sent the bumpers to be analyzed by another expert, and they determined the dents hadn't been caused by concrete. Union representatives sent this new investigation to David Burnham at the New York Times. On November 19th, six days after Karen's death, Burnham published an article about the suspicious crash. He cited the union as saying Karen's death, quote, might not have been an accident, and they demanded a full investigation by the Justice Department and the Atomic Energy Commission. In response, Dean McGee, one of the founders and CEO of Kerr-McGee, told the New York Times that it wouldn't be appropriate for them to comment on an ongoing investigation. But according to him, the company was in compliance with the AEC and other regulatory bodies. McGee's statement was partially right, at least according to the AEC. Less than two months later, on January 7, 1975, the commission released its reports. According to the New York Times, the AEC found evidence backing up many of Karen and the union's claims of safety issues and falsifying documents. 
But in a confusing turn, the AEC concluded the deficiencies, quote, did not threaten the health and safety of workers. As for Karen, the report stated that her contamination had been intentional and had to have taken place outside of Kermagee, meaning someone had stolen plutonium from the facility, which was a federal crime. Union leaders likely hoped that would prompt the FBI to file charges against someone. But five months later, in May 1975, the New York Times reported that the FBI and Justice Department's investigation was coming to a close. According to an unnamed source, they were satisfied that Karen had not been murdered, though they noted they were investigating possible union rights violations that gave no update on possible legal action. The lack of transparency from the FBI and DOJ was troubling to Karen's colleagues and also to Congress. On November 21st, 1975, a little over a year after Karen's death, Montana Senator Lee Metcalf and Michigan Representative John Dingell announced a congressional subcommittee would reinvestigate. But only days before the hearings were to start, Senator Metcalf received a special request for a meeting from Dean McGee. After that meeting, Senator Metcalf suddenly stepped down from the investigation. He claimed it wasn't due to pressure from Kerr McGee, but we can't help but wonder what McGee said to Metcalf. Did he tell him not to poke around due to national security? Did he have incriminating information about Metcalf? We may never know for sure, but it had to be something pretty serious to spook the senator off the investigation. Even without Metcalf, the congressional hearing forged ahead. While no huge revelations came out of the hearings, they did accomplish two things. First, it put Karen's story front and center in the public eye. And it inspired a 30-year-old Harvard-educated lawyer named Daniel Sheehan. After sitting in the audience of the hearings, Sheehan flew to Texas to meet with Bill Silkwood, Karen's father. Sheehan told Bill, even if the DOJ wasn't sure it was going to file criminal charges, there was another course of justice, a civil suit. Basically, Bill could sue Kerr McGee, claiming it was their responsibility to safeguard the plutonium. Bill told the young attorney he didn't care about money. He just wanted to know who killed his daughter. But if Sheehan's team would help investigate that, he'd approve the lawsuit. So he did. The trial started on March 6, 1979. According to Time magazine, Kerr McGee's lawyers portrayed Karen as someone who might contaminate herself. Bill Silkwood's side characterized Kerr McGee as a heartless, profit-hungry corporation that didn't care about workers or public safety. The jury backed Karen's family. On May 18, 1979, they found the Kerr McGee Nuclear Corporation negligent, and they awarded Bill Silkwood and Karen's estate half a million dollars in actual damages. That wasn't all they tacked on $10 million of punitive damages. It was a groundbreaking conclusion. One of the Silkwood team's lawyers, Jim Eichard, later said, quote, 
It was the first case to find that a nuclear facility was an ultra-hazardous activity, and you didn't need to prove negligence if you got hurt. As you can expect, Kerr-McGee appealed the decision. Over the next several years, the two sides went back and forth. Sometimes Silkwood won, sometimes Kerr-McGee. The case even appeared before the Supreme Court, not once, but twice. Then, on August 22, 1986, nearly 12 years after Karen's death, Kerr-McGee settled out of court with Bill Silkwood. They agreed to pay $1.3 million, a significant discount to the $10 million originally awarded, but it was finally over. Kerr-McGee chalked it up to a win. One of their spokesmen told the press they would have prevailed in a new trial, but agreed to the out-of-court settlement avoid further litigation costs, meaning they still maintained their innocence, they just didn't want to spend the money. As for Bill Silkwood, he told the press he felt vindicated because the original jury still found Kermagee guilty of gross negligence. For Bill, it was likely never about the money, it was about the principle. His daughter had been contaminated and died while trying to make Kerr-McGee a safer place to work. But even if Karen fulfilled her role as a hero, a cowboy, riding into town, shutting down Kerr-McGee's facility, and cleaning up other nuclear sites, it didn't shut the door on the rumors and conspiracy theories that lingered. Next time, we'll explore three of the biggest theories surrounding the case, like conspiracy theory number one that Karen intentionally contaminated herself to smear Kerr-McGee. Or conspiracy theory number two, Karen was run off the road and killed by another car. And finally, the granddaddy of all Silkwood theories, number three, that Karen was assassinated because she stumbled onto a covert government plutonium smuggling ring, which may seem far-fetched, but Karen's story was so big it may have even involved the White House. Thanks for listening to this episode of ParCast, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. For part two on Karen Silkwood, Tune in next time on Conspiracy Theories and check out our other shows like Unsolved Murders, Solved Murders, and Serial Killers. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify every Monday and Wednesday. For more information on Karen Silkwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Rashke's book, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, the story behind the Kerr-McGee plutonium case, extremely helpful to our research. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Adam DeSilva, edited by Mallory Cara and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg. 